Hi, this is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. You can learn more about it at authormagazine.org, and we are funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. To learn more about the PNWA, you can go to pnwa.org. Yes, indeed. Well, people, uh, it's middle of April, and that means in six short weeks, my new book, Everyone Has What It Takes, A Writer's Guide to the End of Self-Doubt, will be publishing June 1st. Yes, I am looking forward to sharing that with you. Everyone has what it takes. Yes, indeed. just going to mention it now. I'll be talking about it a little bit more uh, as the publication date Approaches. In the meantime, oh, I had a great conversation with today's guest, Lainey Cameron. Lainey is a digital nomad and author of women's fiction, as well as the founder and host of the Best of Women Fiction series. A recovering tech industry executive, her award-winning novel, The Exit Strategy, was inspired by a decade of being the only woman in the corporate boardroom. And ah, I'm excited I get to share it with you today. Enjoy. All right, well, uh, Lainey, woof, man, this has been quite the journey uh, for you, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, I want to. I know you've got a great story, and um, it was not a direct route for you to uh, fiction writing. Um, but did you what? What was writing always in your blood a little bit like when you were a girl? Because a lot of I know a lot of writers. I talk to a lot of writers and. Around age nine, something usually lights up for most of them, whether they pursue it immediately or not. That tends to be when something awakens. Did that happen for you? Oh, that's such a great question. And, you know, sometimes uh, I feel like a bit of a fake because I feel like the only appropriate writer answer to this question is I've dreamed of being a writer my whole life. I woke up at eight years old. No, that is not the case for me. Okay. I was a voracious reader. So I read my way through, oh my goodness, like when I was around that age, I read the entire uh, Discworld series by Terry Pratchett. I read wow. all the Archer novels. I read all the Jackie Collins novels. Like I was the craziest reader. Like I was reading multiple books per week at that age. And I loved at reading. nine? Yeah, yeah, I was really lucky. I, I grew up with a single mom who was an academic. And so like, she was always pushing me into reading. And then at some point it just kind of caught. And, but I also read like Ronald Dahl and the Sweet Valley High series. And like, I was all- Wow, wow. so you were- yeah, well, you know, that is something not my wife was not like that. She's a writer, but she did not read voraciously at all. So she was unusual. But that's true of most writers that they they just were readers. I, I was, too. Um, and I do think that I mean, I, I and did you continue to read as you were an adult? So I did. And to answer your question about dreaming of being a writer, I think it was only in my 20s and 30s that I started to think, you know, I'd love to write a romance novel someday. That was actually what was in my head. I was like, a romance maybe one novel. day. And in my head, I thought, maybe one day when I retire, right? A lot of people have that, like, you know, one day I'll right. retire and I'll write a book thing. 
And it's interesting because over a period of about 15 years when I was working in Silicon Valley, I actually read very little because I was working these crazy hours. I actually, um, one of my funnest little trivia facts is I have enough air miles to go to the moon and back six times. That's how much I used to wow. travel. Wow. So, which is about two, three million air miles. Yeah. And so I used to travel like nonstop. I was on the road every week. I was, you know, right. going to wonderful places. And I love that. I, I got to see the most amazing places in the world, but I actually didn't have a lot of time for reading. And right. so for about the last decade of my career, when I was in Silicon Valley, I was working these crazy 90, 80, 90 hour weeks. I was traveling all the time. I wasn't reading a lot, uh, but I had this dream of one day I'll write a romance novel. And so here's what's funny. Ultimately, I left Silicon Valley. I started writing a novel and it's a novel that has a sociopathic husband in it where the woman is trying to get divorced over the course of the novel. So it's about as far from a romance right. novel as you can right. get. Oh, that's interesting. But you, you're, you were thinking, okay, so, so all right. So you, 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 so you, you love to read. And I assume you read through like college, but so you get out, you're an ambitious person and you get out of school. Did you get an MBA? Uh, I did similar. I did an undergrad business and then an extra year after that. And it was a fun degree. I did it in French and English. So okay. finally, oh. I, um, my most useless life skill is I'm fluent in French. Um, oh. as more or less bilingual in French, uh, because I lived there for several years. That was my dream to work in oh. France. Wow. And I actually was brought to California to Silicon Valley, kicking and screaming by the company I was working for at the time. Oh, in France? To go back to France. <laughs> so you were in France and you were, so you're, you're bilingual. I studied French in high school. It was, when I was in high school, French was the cool language in my circle. Uh, I, it, it was impractical. It seemed practical at the time, you know, because it was such a cool language and the French were cool. This was before we thought they were all snooty, but then we thought they were all cool. Uh, and so, but I did not get fluent even closer. So you're fluent in French. That's cool. And so, but, and so you get dragged to, to Silicon Valley. And what year was that? That would have been 97, I want to say. 97. So the dot-com bubble. Dot-com craze, yes. Has, is happening. Did it burst? Had it burst already it's a little kinda, bit? No, it was happening. In fact, um, I remember having the funniest conversation when I was leaving a very big blue chip company to go to a startup. And yeah. the reason I was leaving is I was in my twenties and I wanted to get promoted. I was very ambitious. I wanted to right, get promoted. Right. I wanted to be a manager. Sure. And uh, the rather, um, this will tell you a little bit about why I write a feminist book about Silicon Valley. The, the rather um, older than me by 20 years gentleman who was the general manager, I remember him sitting me down and saying, I can't believe you're going to be head of marketing in a startup. No one ever does well at startups. You're making a big, a big, big bad decision, a big, you know, mistake. Right. And I remember looking at him and thinking, like, you and I are not inhabiting the same universe, right? Yeah. Now. He's stuck in the he's stuck in the '70s or something, apparently. Yeah, you know? and it ended up being a, a great gift. I went to a tiny startup. I think I was employee number six. And oh, so they had all the stock options and all that. And all we right. grew and we ultimately got acquired by a really, really big company. That's, that's the dream, isn't it? Yeah. And so it was fun. It was fun while it went. But I will say that by the time I got into my 40s, my uh, I was tired. Yeah. You can only do this for so long. What, and I was What tired. were you doing? Like, what was your job? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it even worth explaining it to me? Is it even yeah, like... No, it's actually I had my best one of my best friends has worked for IBM for years. He's a graphic designer, but he and I said, "What do you actually do, Gorm?" And he explained it to me. And I was like, "I don't understand any of that." So, is it possible? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll give you two answers. So when I started, when I was younger in my 20s, I was a product manager, which okay. basically means the person who decides what the product should be. So right. what should it look like? What should it cost? What should it be called? What color right. should it be? And you were overseeing the, the programmers and the engineers and stuff. So, but you're not, obviously you're not designing anything, but you're, you're like the producer in a movie, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a good way to see it, see it. And then later in my career, as I became more senior, and this is where it got interesting because I was in these boardrooms and I was the only woman in the boardroom and it was a whole different dynamic. We're literally yeah, the only was, woman in the boardroom. Literally the only, that was actually what inspired my book was that experience yeah. of being the only woman in the boardroom right. and what happens as a result. And so at that point, very simply, I was char in charge of marketing for companies. So I owned the marketing and the strategy. Okay. Right. So that, you know, I have certainly been the only man in the room because of what I do. That's a, not an unusual because I coach and often it's only, of course, I'm coaching usually when that happens, but just the writing world actually draws a largely female. But that's a very different experience, I think, than being the only woman in the room, especially in a boardroom, which has just, just reeks as like war room. It's the locker room. Right. It's kind of an extension of that a little bit. I just... Club. Yep. Right. And I you know, it's interesting. You, I'm working I with a guy who's never been invited. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. But I, th I thought of you because I'm working with a guy who had a, went through a terrible life crisis and is writing his memoir, but he had been in sales, but he had been an athlete and the sale, the athlete to sales to business is a very easy transition because it's all about keeping score and winning and all this. And the athlete, the male athlete, you know, and I was part of that too, can be a little unfriendly to women, I think, because they so want that guy thing, right? It's just what they get. They understand it. They don't want, don't bring your emotions into this. Don't bring, just let's keep it four square here. So was it like that for you? Or oh, what yeah. did you get I along mean, okay? Talking about the the athletic bent and even the military bent, but certainly the athletic bent, you know, sales teams in Silicon Valley companies and in tech companies are full of military lingo. So you'll hear people say things like, we're going to take the competition and we're going to tear off their yeah, arms. Yeah. And we'll step it up there. Like that is very common language. Oh, God. And so, yeah, there is that kind of, um, I think at one point in the book, I describe it as testosterone central. And I say that yeah. he's working in an environment where testosterone drips down the walls. Yeah. And yes. that definitely is the case that some of these companies still are like that. And the example I was going to give you earlier is it, it is very interesting moving into writer world. Like you say, it's very woman centric. Totally I'm in a community different. of female writers, but yeah. I don't know. Have you ever been invited to a strip club to go to a meeting? Cause that happened to me. You know, several times. I've heard of that. You know, it's weird. I've been to a strip club once in my life and it was for a bachelor party. I did not like it. I left early. And when I hear that people go to strip clubs for something other than like that or their, or their dysfunctional relationship to sex, it makes no sense to me because how can you, Focus. How, can, how can you, like, I don't even know what Have to say about that. Be respectful of the other people sitting next to you. Like, yeah. And it's, it's a, a perfect example of a lose-lose situation for a woman in tech, right? So right. you can go two ways with that situation. Well, you can go multiple ways. You can go the, I'm just one of the boys. I'll go along with this right, and I'll go right. to the club but you're still going to feel super awkward while someone's dipping their boobs on the table as you're trying to talk about yes. this quarter's numbers. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's being nice about it. Or you can go the other way of saying nicely, you know, that's not a good idea. I'm not going to come. The guys end up going and therefore you're cut out of the conversation. Well, that's right, because then not you're not a part of the whole thing. You know, in there, look, I, I can't stand that crap. I never did. Even when I was in sports, I liked sports, but I didn't like that stuff. But in their defense for these people, if you... If that's the one place you thrived, 
like the only place you felt successful. Where do you go with that? Where do you take that energy and that like win, 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 win. Like that's how you know life has meaning. What do you, where do you go with it? And when do you let it drop? Because for those people, and I know, and I knew them and I was a little bit like that, but I, I had the artist in me, so I couldn't go that direction. It like, where do you go with it? If you're not going on to be a professional athlete. So you take that whole attitude, which has a success minded thing. And then, ugh, and yeah, then bring women who, who can't, you have to then like humanize them. Like that becomes <laughs> your job, but they don't want it probably. And what drives me crazy is the stereotypes of women in this environment as being very, um, can I use the B word, bitchy? Yes, in order of to get course. <laughs> and sure. so it's really interesting because like, I think it's a way of, um, and it's funny because um, I'm really involved in a lot of women's activities and, and right. uh, a lot of women's associations. And I think it's a way of exerting control by saying, if you're aggressive, if you try to meet the norm in that scenario, then you're not behaving like a woman. But on the right. other hand- Oh, it's a lose-lose situation for the norm. women. And really it's like the women have to come in and the men who are who have like been in the boys club have to look up and realize this is uncomfortable now for me. Like this doesn't work with a woman here. And let me either, either you look at that and say, why isn't it working? Maybe this isn't appropriate for it or you fight it and get mad. But as and soon as someone comes in, it's not appropriate. You can't make those jokes anymore. You they've can't. done many studies that show that um, companies with women on the board and not one woman, but multiple women on the board right. and companies led by uh, female CEOs actually get better financial results. Like they've oh. shown this again and again really? and again. Yeah, why do you think that is? During stereotype that people don't want to talk about that. Yeah, but why do you think that? So, I mean, I, it, it's, it's a nice story, right? It's good to know. And it doesn't, but it, it's, I, I'm surprised that there is actual direct correlation. I can believe it's like people like working there better right? But it leads to better money because why do you think? I have a theory. So it's to do with collaboration, but it's not the stereotype of women are more collaborative than men. I actually right. don't believe genetically that we are that no, different. No, no, okay? I think no. we're programmed differently, but I don't believe genetically that women no. naturally can collaborate and men naturally can compete. But in order to get to the point that you are senior as a woman, you learn to collaborate because that's how you get there. Because right. if you try to compete and get there by competing, you generally fail. And this is one of those stereotypes about women that drives me crazy in the workplace is when women are portrayed as going against each other and being you know, bitchy and competitive right. to each other, that is not my experience at all after 20 plus years in Silicon Valley. And that's why I actually wrote a book about friendship because that, um, that stereotype drives me crazy. If you think about every movie you've ever seen with women being successful in business and what type of personality do they give that woman? Right. Or you think about every story of a wife and a mistress you've ever read where the wife and the mistress face off against each other. Right. It's always going to be that big, you know, clash between the two people. Right. And, you know, to me, that just isn't the reality. That wasn't I your experience. <laughs> that wasn't your experience. That wasn't my experience. Right. All right. So, well, this is really fascinating. So this is a big pivotal experience for you. It's a big learning experience. Um, were you married at that time? I know you've, you've got, you've been married for two years now, but did you have a different spouse then? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's, it's not unrelated that I went through a very difficult divorce and then wrote a book where the character is dealing with the infidelity right. and trying to get a divorce. I'm sure that, you know, all fiction is inspired from real of life course. in some way, yeah. right? So it's fiction, but certainly my real life experience of going through the pain of divorce kind of fed into that. And so talk to me about the decision to A, leave the, the world of 
Com and also and to go into fiction. I assume, I mean, not to get too personal, but I assume you had a little cash in your pocket if you, if you, so you weren't having to like take a dive and just live on the street or something. There are, there are two things that contributed to me being able to afford to be an author, because I'm very open about this, that very few authors can pay the bills by writing novels. That is generally not how people, especially their not bills. their first novel. Yeah, and even multiple novels. Like I know, I, have many I know. Friends yep. who are best-selling yep. authors, but they're making their money in coaching, in consulting, in right. teaching, All the different many stuff. other yep. ways. So you're absolutely right. Um, two things. Yeah, I'm a crazy Scot who doesn't like to sp- spend money. So I was <laughs> you're one of those. while I was in tech. I, was, I never had the big house and the big car and all the big stuff that some people did. I, I was kind of um, to the level of almost dysfunctional with it. Like I'm Scottish and I admit that it's it's... It's okay. maybe something I can work on. I'm not good at spending money. Um, but on the other hand, we were living in San Francisco, my now husband and I, when I started writing. And I gave myself six months and said, I'm going to try writing for six months. I'm going to see if I have the end to this book. Because I actually had the beginning and I didn't know if I had a whole book in me. Had you left the, the, the business at that time? Or I, you, had, you I had just now. finished my last job. So I said, I'm going to give myself six months. And okay. then I'm gotcha. probably going to go back to tech. We'll see. Probably. Ah, okay. All right. All right. And after six months, um, some really cool things happened. I won an award for an unpublished novel. And that made me go, oh, maybe maybe I should stick with this and see it through to the end and not just right. get it, you know, limit it to six months. And so what happened is we said, well, there's no way we can do this and live in San Francisco and pay San Francisco rent. And so five years ago, when I started this whole thing, when I got six months in, my husband and I decided to become digital nomads. And we've been living around the world in different locations, wow. inexpensive locations right. ever since. So right now wow. I'm talking to you from Mexico. Wow. And so, all right. So for five years, you've been a digital nomad, meaning does he continue, does he still work? Does he have a job? Yep, like he a works regular- full time uh, for like three different jobs in Silicon Valley. Okay. But he can do, but they're such that he can do them all digitally. He can do them all yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it's funny because we all used to say oh, only some jobs can be done remotely. And in well, the last learning, year huh? of the pandemic, we've learned, oh, look, it's not as impossible as we thought. My brother works for Viacom, essentially. He works for, for TV Land, and they've just, the entire company has gone di- virtual. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, that's a big, <laughs> that's a big company. And so, oh. and it can be done. And I, oh. don't you think the world is going to change once we've all gotten vaccinated? I cannot see everybody going back into the office everybody going back into the office. You're seeing some very interesting patterns in real estate markets in the US right now, especially around the Bay Area, because people are realizing even when they go back to the office, they don't need to be there every day like they thought they did. And so people are moving out of San Francisco to two, three, four hours away with the theory that, well, or completely out of state, but like with the theory that, well, even if I do need to be in the office, if I'm two, three hours away, I can do it once a week. I don't need to do it every day. And so, yeah, it's causing some very interesting um, San Francisco real estate's actually going down. And then cities like Santa Cruz are going up. Oh, my away. God. Wow. All right. So but you were ahead of the curve. You guys got out. You went around. And do you like that? You like being a nomad? I love it. It, it yeah. fuels creativity. I'm a big believer that fiction is is based on empathy like what for me what books are all about is the ability to put yourself in someone else's life and see what it feels like to be in their shoes right even though it's fiction it's taking it's taking someone else's life experience and building fiction based on it right so like for my book if you've never been the only woman in the boardroom in silicon valley that's the experience i wanted to give people 
for someone else's book, like um, Asane Sadir has a wonderful book based in Iran. And that book took me to Iran and enabled me to be there and to be wearing a veil and to do things that right. I would never normally do, but right. I was living in someone else's shoes. And so I say that because I think living outside the US, living outside whatever your country of origin is, has that same impact. Cause you have to put aside some of your um, preset views of how things work and right. try to have empathy for other people and see it from their perspective and from their culture. And it just, it, it, I think it really kind of works that empathy muscle in a way that is really valuable for fiction. But you were, but you were bopping around the globe anyway, when you were employed. Yeah. I mean, you must've been, but, but, but maybe it's different when you're, when you're traveling for business, you're just going from hotel to airport to hotel to airport. Maybe yeah. it's a little too much like home even. I, I've always tried to add on like, um, when I would go to Japan, I would try and add like six days or four days or so, however many days I could get away with at the end to go. And I would leave Tokyo and I would go to Kyoto or some other city. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the same. Like we have a theory when we're um, traveling and right now is different because of the pandemic. We've been mostly in Mexico since the beginning in one location. But we have a theory that we try to do six months at a time because you really need that extended period to get used to a place, to meet people, right. to not be a tourist, but to actually live sure. there. Sure. And so, yeah, I do think it's different than when you're coming in and out fast on, on whatever kind of trip. But then you leave and all those people you met who loved you and had gotten used to you, then they don't have you anymore. You've, so you've got broken hearts all across the world, people who miss you. Does that bother you at all, Lainey? Uh, you're like a you're like a Bill Bixby when he was the, <laughs> uh, the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, in the when I think of like one of our best friends in Colombia, uh, we were in Cartagena, Colombia, and one of our best friends, who I think we were drawn to because she was interested in us as Americans and we were interested in her as a Colombiana, now right. lives in the States. So ah. she's now in San Diego. And oh, so we'll wow. see her okay. when we go to the States. And then I think of some of the other people we met there who've moved to France. Like you meet people who are also open to being in many locations and people are mobile. So I think it's more that I miss my family in Scotland because they're still in Scotland and they don't go anywhere. The people right. I meet around the world, I actually get a chance to intersect again, even if it's just them on vacation and we're no friend, friends on Facebook. I generally get a chance oh. to see people I was close to again in a different time and place. So, all right. So Exit Strategy, this book, this is novel number one that's been, that you've published. Yeah. So what's that like for you? Does it, uh, is it, when did it come out? Was it? It, it came out in July, 2020. So okay. Right in the middle of the first year of the pandemic. Oh, nice. Yeah, lucky um, you. Okay. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, but it was great because I was part of the community of debuts and I really yeah. um, was very involved with that. I did their Instagram for them. I got very involved in supporting other debut authors. And um, it's actually coming out right now on audiobook for the first time. It's just. Are you reading it? No, I have such a distracting voice. I believe it's that's so true. Well, you do have a, you have a, you do have an accent, and, you know. So it probably yeah, probably best to have something. Yeah, like, so I'm going to be reading my book apparently when it comes out in June. But my oh, voice, great. yeah. So well, I have a radio voice, I guess, but it's neutral enough that I can do it. But yeah, yeah it's probably good. And of course, you have to read. But see, mine's nonfiction, so I can. I can. It's me talking to the reader. Uh, yours, you have to be able to do the voice. Is, or you have to right. be able to act out the character. It's a little right. Different. And so I hired a, a wonderful narrator called Susan Marlowe. And she, it's interesting, I just did an interview with her and she doesn't call it narrating. She calls it performing. Yeah. Because she I, does yep. perform the voices yep. differently. And yep. she did a fabulous job. In fact, I, a few weeks ago, I got to sit um, on the hammock in the roof here in Mexico and listen to 12 hours because I had to listen to it for right. hours if anything right. was wrong. And that was an amazing experience. Yeah. Because you never really get to hear how someone else reads your book. See, 
You know what? I'm so glad you said that because I teach, when I teach writing, I teach personal essay and memoir. And what I do for the class is I read everybody's work. I say, you sit down, I'm reading, not you, me, because A, I can read, so it hopefully it won't be boring. B, more importantly, just what you said, you need to hear somebody besides yourself read it. You got to hear my interpretation because that's the reality because they don't, everybody reads it differently, puts emphasis on different things. Oh, that must've been fascinating. It was fascinating. And actually it made me feel the most proud I've felt so far, which ah. is not all what I expected. And <coughs> excuse me. Um, I have won some work this book, which has been, has been amazing for a first book. I think it's in the running for its fourth award right now. Wow! But Congrats. that even didn't feel quite as amazing as hearing the narrator read the book because it was this experience of like, she put the intonation in entirely different places to where I had as I was reading it along the way in my head and out loud. Sure. And it still worked. And it was amazing yeah. to realize that there isn't one way to read something that it can work. And right. in some areas, like it was better than I thought. And so yeah. it was like, wow, okay, cool. <laughs> yes, well, that is, I, I will tell you, I had that experience when I was 20 and I, had, I was into theater and I imagined this piece I really wanted to write. And I like, I'd so loved, I'd imagined it and pictured it and I couldn't bear it anymore. I wrote it out as a short scene. And I was like, oh, I've been here. I was an actor. So I was hearing all the parts in my head and then I invited my brother and my best friend who are both actors, like, let's do it. Let's read. So I gave them the things and we started it. And it was magical to me because as soon as they started acting, it changed. Yeah. And even though it was different than what I had sort of thought it should be, it was more, inter it came more alive because it passed through them. And you know, and the thing is, it's happening to every person who reads your novel. You just can't see it or hear it, but that's what's happening every time they read it. Exactly. I think that's why it was so eye-opening for me is realizing it wasn't just that this one person read it differently. And conceptually, I know that everybody comes at a novel or even a nonfiction book, but certainly a novel from their own life experience, right? So that there's a famous phrase that says that everybody's reading a different book because they're reading the yep. book from their own yep. life experience. Absolutely. It's something I talk to other authors about a lot when they're dealing with reviews, right? When you get a review where someone is triggered by your book, right? yeah, like yeah, yeah. whatever reason, yep. it's not about your book and it's not about you. It's about their life experience right. that they brought to this book. And so I, I talk to people about that because it's hard, right? Not to take it personally as an author when someone is triggered by your work. Sure. Um, and it's funny because I'm still waiting for someone to write a, a, a review that says that my novel is a total man-hating novel and why are all right. the male characters not <laughs> right. wonderful. Um, I'm kind of, it's coming. I know it's coming sure, eventually. Sure, sure. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. And so it was just like a an example of that. It really brought it home and made me go, wow, yeah. yeah. Like this is so different to my interpretation. And the thing I always tell people is have your computer read your novel to you. Like um, sure. I actually have Scrivener read it to me with that horrendous computer voice. Yeah. It's horrible. But it's still but it helpful. It works because it makes you listen to the words differently. Yeah, you know, we really, when we're authors, we have to give our book away. I mean, we're, we get paid for it and that's great and people buy it, but you have to let, you have to give it to the world because they're going it, to, it, it's not yours anymore in that way. It's not really yours. It's theirs now. Yeah. You have to be okay with that. I think that keeps, I actually think that keeps some people from having success that on some level, they know that, that they want, that they think they have to keep it as their own. Like a kid, they won't let leave the house almost, you know? Right. The, the authors or the writers we know who've written, you know, five novels and they're in the drawer and they can't quite work up to querying them. And yeah. I'm not criticizing because if that's someone's path for them, that's fine. But there is something there about fear of it's not your baby anymore, right? Once yeah. you put it in the world, it's no different than bringing up a kid, right? Once nope. you put that kid out into the world, you can't control what happens in nope. kindergarten. Like that nope. kid is going to have experiences exactly. outside of you that you have zero control over. That's right. 
That's right. And you really have to get comfortable with that. What I always say to my students is, but what does belong to you is what you went through writing it, right? So what you, there was something, you had a unique experience that'll be yours and yours only. And that's really, and, and it's kind of fun with the book, isn't it? I mean, you write fiction. So I write books that are sort of inspirational in nature. And so I, I have a conversation with people afterwards about the book. They're meant to sort of stimulate conversation, but I think the same is true of the fiction writer. So you have your experience writing it and then you go and have the conversation afterwards. Yeah. Like we're having now. So we talk about the boardroom and that is, is sort of the added gift. I think after you've written it, that's the, that's that you get to keep, keep it living yeah, in some I mean, way. Yeah. I'm seeing that with book clubs there. There's two big conversations that are sparking off my novel and they're not really conversations about my novel. There are conversations yeah. about a topic that is raised by yes. my novel that yeah. creates dichotomy in a book club. And one is that the book is a, about a wife and a mistress who start off by facing a, across the negotiating table. Basically they have to work together. Right, okay? right. One has invested in the other's company. And so that starts a whole conversation of, could you ever become friends with your, with your husband's mistress? Which is what this book is about, is the friendship right. between the two women by the end right. of the book. And you know, we get really different points of view in book clubs. Some people are like, no frigging way. Yeah, I, I would think that would be the... And you know, they're having a visceral reaction to this book is unrealistic and that could never happen. And then the other half are like, no, but it could happen. And here's what it did. And so it's really right. interesting. And then the other one is this being the only woman in the room. I've had people write me letters who are engineers, who are nautical, um, nautical, uh, I want to say engineer, but like in charge of shipbuilding, in charge of very male professions. And that also sparks its own conversation yeah. around, especially in book clubs, which tend to, to be mostly women around yeah. like, is that your life experience? What's your experience of this being? How do you deal in that situation? And so to your point, right, those are real life conversations. Yeah. They're not necessarily about the book. They're just yeah, about but questions posed by the book. Yeah, I think that, but I think those are the more interesting conversations because you can talk about the book to a degree, but basically everyone's going to have their own experience of it, what they liked and didn't like, and that's fine. But I think the conversations that it sparks about life and what it means to be the only one in the room or to be some be somewhere new or to, or even even the, the, the wife and mistress, that's really about people who should be enemies. Like, what does it mean to be an enemy? Do you have to be an enemy? Is it real? That's a deeper conversation about the nature of being human. Because the fact is, this is true about relationships. Either if, you, if one person wants out, then the relationship is over. You know, whether they get out by a mistress or they get out by just doing the mature thing and leaving, you, you want out. And once it's over, you don't want to be in a relationship that's over anyway. Yeah. I mean, and it's, a, it's a topic that's explored in a lot of different books in women's fiction, right? That topic yeah. of do you leave? Do you stay? Is it over yep. and you just haven't accepted that yeah. it's over? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think about all the girlfriends I had before I was married and, you know, often they would leave me. That was usually the pattern for a while. And I kind of get upset at first, but I would quickly realize, no, that they just recognized before I did that this was over, <laughs> that this wasn't working. Because right. it's working for both people. It's working for both people, you know. Right. All right. Well, okay. So congrats. It sounds like it's going well. It's your first book, but this, if you want a career, it can't be one book unless it just goes, unless it's, you know, uh, kill a mockingbird. So you, uh, so are you writing more? Have you started another one? Are you publishing another one soon? Absolutely. Uh, well, I can't speak for how soon it'll publish because I'm learning the process as I go, right? The first one took five years. Right, I think right. This one will take me about a year, but ask me at the end of that year and I'll tell you whether that was right, right or not. Okay, good. Um, so I have a deadline to give it to my developmental editor in the middle of the year in July. And 
it's funny because the first one came from my life experience in Silicon Valley. The yeah. second one comes from my life experience as a digital nomad. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's a great, but that's a great premise because it's sort of romantic and interesting and different and and uh, I mean romantic in the sense of like traveling the world, a romantic view of life, you know, whether that's what you explore. Well, I've, I've taken that romantic life and I've given it a main character who has a dark past that she doesn't want to be exposed. Ooh. So oh, that, is she sort of running from it? She's both a celebrity in that she has become this really famous Instagrammer under her new identity. Ah, she has a past that is under a new, a different name that has never oh. been exposed. How modern. How modern an Instagram that uh, you're the first writer I've talked to who's using Instagram in her story. Very good. Oh, and it has um, it has interstitials from Instagram throughout the book as well. Oh, very nice. All right. Well done. Well done. Uh, well, congratulations. Okay. So first of all, if people want to talk to you, it's so obviously you will appear at, uh, at, at, um, writing or reading groups if you want to book groups if people absolutely so love best place to reach you is just laneycameron.com what's your what's your website um, yeah i'm gonna give give two urls here okay. um laneycameron.com which is my website and you can find all my social media i'm big on instagram i've got about seven thousand followers on instagram and i oh. love wow. sharing my travels around the world okay. so please come and i answer every message on instagram if you comment i will respond back to you so i would say you can find all of that on my website at laneycameron.com but the other thing I do to support the writing community, and in particular women's fiction writers, is I have a site called bestofwomensfiction.com. And okay. I have a podcast where I interview women's fiction writers specifically about their inspiration and how they came around to the idea of what they're writing. And so lots of good interviews with other authors, bestsellers, debuts, all kinds of women's fiction. Oh, writers. excellent. Oh, what? after my own heart. Very good. Okay. So get that, everybody. Go check it out. You won't be disappointed. I got one more question for you, though, Lainey. This is what I want you to do. I want you to finish this sentence. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? The power of community. Community? Ha! Not the usual answer. What? How did it teach you that? Because when I started five years ago, truly writing, sat down and wrote the first words of this book. Very shortly after I joined Women's Fiction Writers Association, which is an association of about 1500 people. I, I basically joined as soon as I worked out what my genre was, which took okay. me a while. Yeah. And they help the, the members of that association who are now my friends, which is why I try to give back, helped me every single step of the way, whether it was how do I learn the craft? Which classes do I go take? Which conferences do I attend? Where do I start? Whether it was, I need beta readers. How do I find beta readers? I need sensitivity readers. How do I find a sensitivity reader? I need a <laughs> developmental editor. How do I find a developmental editor and choose the right one? Now I'm ready to publish. I've had 130 rejections from agents. Should I give up or find a small publisher? Right. Which small publisher should I go with? Every single step of the way, I have been part of a community of writers who have supported counseled, advised, and I try to give back. I've, I've volunteered. I ran all the programs for the association for a couple of years. I now have this uh, podcast series where I try and raise the visibility of other authors. Right. I love to help mentor. So yeah, for me, like um, I think I have a, a line in my bio that says community is what makes the author's life worthwhile. Without that community, I wouldn't have stuck with it. Wow. Well, that is good for all the loners out there who drawn to writing. Well, Lainey, Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Well, thank you. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate you inviting me to chat here. Well, there you go, people. Community. Yes, indeed. Community. Got you. You know what? 
We're in it together. Yes, we are. Laney's right. Even if you're a writer, home all alone by yourself. We are in it together. Yes, we are. And, uh, well, we'll be in it together again next week. I'll be doing this one more time. Uh, until then, I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries. And to all of you, go find something you love to do and do it. Do it together. Do it alone. But just do it.